Hey guys, welcome to the Better Building Systems Podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Perry, and here with me today is Nick Taliska, Mark Sankey, and a special guest, Pat Kine. Pat is a senior commissioning manager with Lotusworks, and in today's podcast episode, we'll be covering clean, the cleanroom commissioning process, equipment involved in it, and do's and don'ts of cleanroom commissioning. So I think today's going to be a really great episode. In our past, we've done a whole a commissioning series in a separate podcast, and we wanted to revisit it into this podcast with you guys and make it cleanroom specific because we haven't really broached this topic too much in this podcast series. So to begin, uh, just let Pat start off with some with an introduction of himself. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, it's good to be here. Um, yeah, so I work for a company called Lotusworks, and they originally founded in Ireland in, back in 1989. And um, it's it's a company that's grown a lot in the in the commissioning world um, over, over that period of time. There's over 600 employees at this point. Um, and we're primarily involved in the commissioning space, uh, but on both sides of the Atlantic, involved in semiconductor and life sciences and data centers primarily. And uh, I've learned an awful lot uh, from having worked with them over, over the past number of years. Um, it's, it's been quite a journey and it's brought me to where I am now where I'm overseeing some of the commissioning teams here in the US. I'm based up in, uh, in, on the, in the Northeast. Um, but yeah, we're, they're involved in various projects in about 18 different wow. states, I think it is at this yeah. point. Yeah, so the outreach is pretty, the US. Yeah. pretty far, which probably involves you in some really interesting and intricate uh, commissioning projects, I can imagine, with you guys. So. Yeah, in, indeed. There's, uh, it's, it's provided great opportunity and there's um, great variety, let me put it to you that way. Yeah, well, we're really, we're really happy to have you on the podcast with us. Um, like I said, when, when we got your email, kind of reaching out and saying good job on our commissioning podcast series the first thing that came to mind is you know we want to get you on and and have you uh, talk about the the clean room portion and what you know about this because in this podcast series of building hot rodders this isn't something that we've really covered yet and i think it's like a, a very pertinent important topic to go through so thank you it's good to be here i must say thank i've been listening to a few of your podcasts and it's been quite interesting and it's been sort of a almost like getting some psychotherapy because the commissioning of, of uh, buildings these days is quite challenging and it's good to hear all the other um, insight. We do try to put all our, put all we got into our podcast series and um, it's nice to hear some industry professionals find that information in the podcast, you know, relevant and valuable. So we really appreciated you uh, reaching out to us actually. Better than that. Pat said it was like psychotherapy. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, when you look at some of the challenges that are faced, uh, sometimes you think uh, there must be other people that experience the same levels of frustration or problems. And it's always helpful to know that you're not really out there uh, adrift by yourself. Well, and I have to imagine, it, you know, like Pat said, 20 years of experience, he's probably seen it all, you know, so there's, you can become a little maybe jaded after all of that, right? Yeah, indeed. You know, the semiconductor sector itself is, is quite different. And of course, it's all the rage at the moment. Um, there's a lot of uh, semiconductor facilities either being expanded or, or coming out of the ground right now due to the big push uh, on data, data science and artificial intelligence, etc. 
So there's going to be a lot of commissioning involved with these facilities. So it's a good thing we're uh, discussing this in today's podcast. Yeah, indeed. It's not just, just doesn't, I know we're talking about um, clean rooms today. Clean rooms is just one part of it, if you like. Um, but it really is, a, it encompasses the semiconductor facilities. They do encompass a wide range of, of systems to, to, to make them work, to get them into a production state. Yeah, definitely worthwhile noting. So, you know, I guess with that being said and covering some introductions, we can kind of get rolling into the the discussion. And as I stated earlier, today's podcast, we'll be discussing the clean room commissioning process. And this is a, a very broad topic. So I think for, for the time slot that we have today, we'll do our best to kind of cover the key components. And something that really sticks out to me for, for the clean room uh, commissioning process is really the criticality of the proper proper commissioning for these systems because these are very um, high performing facilities that you know they they need to maintain a, a specific temperature and relative humidity and you can't deviate from that much if there's any issues with mechanical equipment they ha- it has to be able to respond appropriately and quickly not overshoot and undershoot so you know I think of commissioning as it you're very thorough no matter what to do a good job but especially with clean rooms I have to imagine that that point cannot be emphasized enough. Yeah, indeed. And I mean, to really understand how strict and tight um, these environmental uh, envelopes need to be, you really have to kind of understand a little bit about the process that's happening inside the clean room. Um, so what we have is, you know, a technology that's, that's creating transistors on wafers that's down to, you know, 14 nanometer, 9 nanometer, even down to 5 nanometer. And just to put it into perspective, you know, 98% of all particles, um, it's generally understood that 90% of all particles indoor are under one micron in size. And we really have to get uh, the clean room to a space down to class 100 where we're down to no more than 100 particles of a size of half a micron for every cubic feet, cubic foot. It's kind of hard to follow, I know, but it's it's really, if you consider a, a hair is typically has a width of, I think, from 50 to 70 microns, we're trying to get the particles down to less than half of one micron. Wow. Okay, Pat, let me, so the, the classes, and, I, and I've heard these before, and you, you mentioned class 100, so that's related to a, a tolerance level or something? Can you repeat that part? Yeah, so the class 100 is what we're trying to do. We're trying to remove as many particles are, are, if not all particles, from from the clean room environment. And if there are particles generated, we're trying to sweep them away and filter them out or exhaust them. Um, well, the particle size, the maximum particle size that's, that's pr- primarily allowed is half a micron. And we're allowed 100 of those particles for every cubic foot in a class 100 environment. Okay, thank you. Okay, interesting. Yeah, there are various classes. Uh, class 1000 would be, of course, referred to 1000 particles would be permitted. But the clean room certification would be looking to use specialized equipment to measure uh, the particles in the space. Um, and that's typically done by a clean room certification company. That would be done by a company that pretty much does nothing else. Um, they may be involved in the construction of the clean room and have clean room protocol technicians there measuring all the time and also policing the space um, to make sure that the environment is not only 
at production and ready for production, but also during construction as well. So we're trying to build clean as well. In other words, right from the outset, when the cleaner mold envelope starts to first get pressurized, they are there to monitor and to ensure that we're also building in a clean environment, not just at production. Sure. Interesting. So does does the cleanliness portion that you just described fall into like your commissioning team's um, realm much as well? Or, or is the HVAC commissioning, quote unquote, kind of separate from the cleanliness i know they're together in a sense but like how much do you fall into the the cleanliness spec of it or do you just say you know all the supporting equipment needs to function as it should the cleanliness comes down to the air changes and hepas and assuming those are working that's fine we don't do a whole lot of quote-unquote commissioning with those or are you pretty involved in that as well so we're pretty much what we have if you can picture a big open space or a big box that we're pressurizing. So we would be more involved in creating the utilities to support those air handlers that support that environment. Right. So oh, that would. In general, Pat, you're not the team putting out the particle counters and those kinds of things. No, we're not, but we may be right. providing some data during construction and yeah. after construction um, with regard to the temperature, the dew point, the pressure and That's- Humidity, of course. So what what do you call that, those types of organizations? And you mentioned certification. So there are companies out there that, that specialize in building clean rooms and they usually carry a, you know, a, a, certific- a certification team. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. And they will be following various, you know, recognized standards to produce that. Typically, the, the basis of design may call out the standard, uh, the parameters that the clean room must be... Uh, We'll stand up at. Okay. Yeah. So when you when you spoke to like the um you know the space conditions that the supporting equipment provides, what what typically do you see for you know space temperature and relative humidity? I guess those are two things that really stick out to me, because you know if you're looking at comfort cooling, just for a general space, you know eh, plus or minus I don't know three four or five you you'd probably be able to consider yourself in in spec if you would call it. But obviously, for a class 100 clean room, that's got to be much, much tighter, right? Yeah, typically it's plus or minus two degrees F. Yep. So our target may be 70 degrees F. It would be dictated by the the equipment in the clean room. Um, they would be calibrated to a certain to 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 run in a certain temperature, especially right, right, the right. the equipment that has does this scanning or the you know has the microscopes to actually do the QAQC and and basically. Make sure that the all the different layers are being produced on on the wafers uh, accordingly, but they have to be those. I think it's the the scanners or the the imaging equipment has to be kept in a very very tight uh, temperature control, plus or minus two degrees F. And the on the on the moisture side, then it's typically around the 46, 47 degrees dew point, and plus or minus um, four four or five percent RH. Yep. So it's pretty tight. It's interesting, Pat, because uh, in general, the plus or minus two is not a enormously tight uh, temperature spec. And you see even tighter specs in some cases where they're doing micro machining. Um, it, you know, it's almost metrology lab precision where you want plus or minus a half a degree. But in general, the manufacturing, clean room manufacturing is 
I mean, plus or minus two is not that stringent, uh, you know, in terms of environmental control. Yeah, that's correct. And what we've seen over um, what, what we've seen over the years is that the tools have been coming with more of their own controlled environment within. So right. they're placed in the clean room, and now now they have their own controlled environment within itself, which would bring that, you know, refine that temperature down. You're meaning like the scientific tools and instrumentation used in that process within the clean room? Correct. Correct. Oh. So the, the tools that are placed in the clean room then would have their own controlled environment within. So we're just giving them, say, a primary environment in yeah, which to work, to work in. Yeah. 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 I suppose yeah. we've seen that too in our experience. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, it, and it's gone more, we used to have a more like a, a what we'd call a bay chase environment in the clean room layout. So you would have rooms within the clean room but now we have what's what's commonly referred to as a more ballroom type setup with fan filter units because the tools have their own environment whereas we used to have the tools used to be kind of laid out in their own corridors if you like in their own rooms within yeah, the clean room the clean what room. i have bought, what i've pictured interesting yeah yeah it's more of a ballroom type setup now and it's i think it's more like that because of the way the tools have gone I think there's energy savings in doing it that way. Oh, I think it makes sense too, because the tools may not all have the same temperature or RH requirement. And if you would be continuously chasing a moving target, if you had to build a clean room that would accommodate all of those different conditions. And uh, so it, it, you know, it makes a lot of sense to, you know, use that kind of configuration. Even from a cleanliness standpoint, I have yep. to imagine just less vertical walls to clean or, you know, more surfaces to collect particles or what have you. So just wide open, all that air can flow, keep the air changes up and the space clean, right? I mean, that's. Yeah, I think the, the real challenge, though, comes in, in really in the startup and commission side of it is, is that they, you know, projects, projects being projects, and they can fall behind schedule, and and but they need to build clean. So we typically have to rush the first two major makeup air handlers into service, um, and depending on the time of year, that can be a challenge, um, because these are one hundred percent makeup air. And in the northeast, of course, as you know, we we have a massive range in temperatures here, and we have to think ahead in terms of what the outside air conditions are going to be like. So, for example, if we we predict, predict that the clean room is going to um, get into its initial purge or blowdown in wintertime, well, then we need to consider having humidification water to those units as early as possible. And that typically would come from the ultra-pure water plant where we take our own water from that to you for the humidification. So, and we may not have all the controls in place, you know, uh, all the feedback from the clean room in place. We may have to do this um, using manual means of data loggers placed in the clean room to help us keep the clean room space as close to spec as, as we can um, during the construction phase. So uh, just to take a step back, you mentioned 100% makeup air units. So at some point in construction, you're, you're basically, you're building, you know, your, your box, right? Or your box yeah. inside of a box, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, you'll hit a point in construction where you say, okay, everything needs to be clean now, right? I mean, I know that's like very, in layman's terms. So that's the, that's the point where you say this, this box of what will be the clean room needs to be positively pressurized. Right. And that's when you bring in those makeup air units for that. Yeah, exactly. For the, like the blowdown portion, I, I don't know what CFM, you know, in general, your, 
using with these makeup air units. But if you're bringing in 50,000 CFM of makeup air, are you, you're exhausting 50,000 as well? So it's just in and out? Yeah, typically the primary goal is to get it pressurized, say up to right. 0, 0. 0.1 of an inch. Uh, okay. Yeah. You know, um, but having said that, what does help keep the particles down is that we have um, increased air changes. And yep. we would typically like to, when we bring on, say, a 60,000 CFM makeup air handler, we would try and bring on also maybe a 30,000 CFM exhaust fan, general exhaust. Right, right, right. Yeah, you don't want the same exhaust as makeup or else you want to have positive pressure. Correct, yeah. And now we've often done it whereby we just had clean room makeup air uh, pressurizing the space and we're just using, because the clean room isn't fully built out or sealed, um, you know, the, the leakage makes up for that. Um hmm. But having said that, like I said, especially with clean rooms these days that are being expanded where they have existing production clean rooms that are pressurized and they're expanding those, we cannot create a pressure adjacent to that or build it out until it's ready, of course. But we don't want to send particles into yeah. it, you know, to migrate from the construction space into the production space. So we may have to keep the pressure lower than we would normally like it. And the particles, of course, would, would tend to build up as a result of that. And to compensate and help alleviate that, we would add extra air changes in the construction space by making sure we've got uh, additional exhaust there, just to keep the pressure hovering around the 0 .0, 0 0.01, 0 0.02, so we don't try not to uh, cross-contaminate, if you like. Huh. Whole different animal, really. Yeah, there's got to be a lot of, so much coordination involved with that, you know, to keep what you just described working properly. Yeah, it, it's a challenge, and um, it's very important to the life facility that we don't, um, you know, send on what we'd call construction phase clean room uh, air, which wouldn't be as tight as maybe as the production space, that we don't uh, migrate any of that air over. Typically, we, we would have, uh, you know, temporary walls in there, maybe just through tarp, clean room tarp, if you like, and make sure it's all taped up and tight. And that usually gives us a good indication as to, you know, that it's pressurized because it will, it will bellow out, you know, Right. and uh, we keep a close eye on that. Huh. Yeah. Pat, just a, a question, maybe uh, off script a little bit, but um, how do you find the level of construction training uh, with regard to clean room? I mean, do you get a variety of, uh, awareness slash knowledge of clean room construction or is it uh typically the the same group or groups uh over and over again that you don't have to go through the whole uh training and awareness kind of stuff uh with the, with the uh trades no that that's a great question because there there is a consistent challenge out there as more and more clean rooms come out of the ground so to speak um, scarcity of skills Right. Yeah, yeah, and, and not so much skill, but also familiarity as well. A lot of a lot of folks in trades would not have wouldn't have ever worked in this environment before, or this sector, and it can be a challenge to them to you know wear the booties, the hairnets, the 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 smocks, you know, the clean room construction um, equipment or clothing that they need to wear, and they typically have to go through an orientation uh, training that typically lasts maybe two hours to go through all the clean room, two to four hours that goes through all the clean room protocol where they're versed on the, you know, what we just spoke about, about, you know, HEPA filters, microns, or sorry, particulates and the size that we're trying to remove. Um, 
And every project that I've been on, there would be what we call clearing protocol personnel that police okay. police that area. And if guys are, for example, not using HEPA vacs, uh, where if they're doing any sort of dirty work, they would need to do obtain an, a dirty work permit. So anything that would pose a risk to the clean room during instruction, they would need to typically get a permit to do that. And that permit would be reviewed for, do they have, you know, the HEPA, HEPA vac filters? Uh, are they, do, do they need to bubble themselves off? In other words, create a small environment in which to work, like a small workshop within the clean room itself. Um, they have to wipe down everything as they come in and out, all the materials. There's typically a, not just a gown room to gown up and get all that, you know, to put on the, uh, what we'd call the clean room working environment clothing. But they'd also have to have a section in the clean room whereby the material gets passed through um, a controlled environment as well, where all the material is wiped down, all particles wiped down, or sorry, to remove all particles off the equipment that they're bringing in or materials. Yeah, I find that to be the biggest challenge for keeping a clean room or during construction phase things clean is just the working with the guys to make sure everything stays all the materials coming in get wiped down properly because I don't know, some people maybe want to wipe it down quick or they don't understand the criticality of how much particles could be on this, whatever it is, if it's a pipe or a, a tools coming into the lab to wipe down properly. A pencil, anything. I mean, yeah, yeah, and everything. The, the Which content. technically wouldn't even be allowed in there, I'd imagine, believe it or not. Yeah, no wood. Yeah, yeah, and it's, and it's not unusual, guys. Uh, we've seen before where you know there's certain guys get frustrated by that. Oh yeah, would, absolutely. You know, we see you know they may go head to head with the protocol personnel, and it may end up that they have to go back and do training again. Yep, that's typically right. how, how how it rolls. You know, and if they have to go back twice, I think it's three strikes. And sorry, this is this environment is not for you. Yeah, you know, interesting. Yeah, it's a whole different animal. It, it is. Um, and I can understand where guys are coming from when they get frustrated, you know, if they haven't. But I think it just takes a little bit of getting used to, I think, more than anything else. Even I myself, when I started, started doing uh, calibrations, I had to go into the clean room and do it. You know, it was, uh, you know, you have to be careful in there, especially in a production environment. Um, swapping out instrumentation, you know, you may need a ladder. You can't afford to hit any of the automated equipment, you know, with the ladder, for example. It's, uh, huh. you got to have your wits around you, you know. Oh, 100%. Yeah, I think it's like just a, a, I don't, a, an appreciation for the cleanliness of the space that you're in. You know, I think initially for a lot of people, it's hard to fully understand. Like, we're keeping this clean to point, you know, 0.5 microns, 0.3 microns, 0.1 microns. And like to understand the size of that compared to like a, a strand of hair or a piece of hair is a great example, which is, I mean, I don't know, it's like hundreds of times bigger than what the particles that we're keeping out are right. If I think I know that yeah. correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Oh. I mean, the hair is typically what somewhere between 50 and 70 microns. Yeah. Say, you know, yeah. We're, we're looking at half a micron here. Yep. So. so I think once you get that appreciation, you can, you can accept, you know, come to terms with, okay, this, these are, these protocols are in place for a reason. So that's why I mean, we do what we e- do. Even the gowning process, once a clean room's up and running in general, the single largest, uh, contaminators are the individuals in the room. I mean, just simple, just by being present, um, you know, you have uh, exfoliation and all those kinds of things that happen 
And by virtue of human presence, the clean rooms are getting contaminated. And that's, you know, the reason we have so many FFUs that uh, yep. are just working continuously. Yeah. And, this, and also there's off gas, you, know, you have to be careful of the materials you bring in there because sure. they, they can off gas. Like there's protocol around what kind of pen you can use there in the clean room, you know? Oh, yes. interesting. Yeah. So certainly no pencils. <laughs> certainly, certainly no pencils or wood products. Yeah. No, paper, no, paper. no paper, no nothing like that. Yeah. 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 Cardboard. So Pat, I know, um, and this has been great for what we've been talking about regarding the clean room portion and the cleanliness and the requirements involved with that. Uh, steering it back to like the commissioning portion, you know, speaking of all these steps during construction, are, are you as the commissioning team often involved early in the construction phase or do you find yourselves getting involved maybe later than you'd like to be to, to kind of help with this and mitigate anything from a HVAC standpoint as well as a cleanliness standpoint? I would say in the past, <clears throat> it's been more, we've been involved in, in the, at the later stages, typically about halfway through construction. We would, be, would have been on board uh, at that point. <clears throat> Which Excuse I can imagine that. can be frustrating when you show up and you know you know you know what to watch out for and worry about and what not to do. And you, I can imagine sometimes you come into a project that has maybe gone off the off the rails slightly for whatever reason that you I could have prevented that if we were here. You know. Yeah, it's a great point. And, you know, it takes a little bit of time. Every project is different. The specs are different. And, you know, it takes a little bit of time to get familiar as well with the, with the design mm-hmm. in order for you to do a, do the commissioning, you know, in a, in a very comprehensive way, um, which is the only way to do it. Um, right. You know, that's the, that's the target, you know. Um, but we have, in more recent years, been involved uh, at a much earlier stage in the design phase and even pre-design. Um, and that's been pushed a lot by the by projects that would be adopting LEED certification. Oh, that's uh, interesting. And, yeah, yeah, it is. Um, <clears throat> so there's two ways to like commission. If you're going LEED certified, a building has to have a uh, commissioning process involved and commissioning um, team. But there are kind of two grades of commissioning, if you like. There's the enhanced commissioning, and there's this fundamental. Fundamental being, you know, what we would what we would all consider to be uh, the standard. Uh, of of getting involved during the construction phase and, and completing it out, but now it's more more involved. People are going for the extra points and the certification, and enhanced gives you that. So, for example, you can get a total of six points uh, for enhanced commissioning as opposed to maybe three um, or two for fundamental. Well, fundamental is actually a prerequisite, but you can get further points, of course, by enhancing your commissioning process. And the difference will be that you will be involved in the design phase, and also you know, create, creating systems manuals for the different systems and basically providing a full rounded package, ensuring the training is done as well, overseeing a coordinate, coordinating that part of it as well. So that the client gets everything that they need to not only run the system, but also maintain it. That is very interesting. I never really would have thought about lead certification being that big a part of a clean room technology. Yeah, nor would I have. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's primarily, I mean, it's more or less been adopted. I think the LEED certification was more geared towards, initially geared towards the, you know, university schools, office yeah. uh, mm-hmm. type. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, but it's been adopted now by, you know, I suppose because of the energy conservation ben- benefits of adopting LEED, environmental benefits. 
And also, I think yeah. there's at state level, there's a lot of the stuff that LEAD does pursue and, and documents. It also feeds well into, you know, state grant aids um, post-construction, if you know what I mean. If they've provided X, Y, and Z in terms of innovation and, you know, it may be down to water conservation, uh, energy reduction, and so on. Oh, sure. And a lot of social credit with that too. But I think the important thing, like you said, the real impetus for you and in, in your firm and others getting involved early was the LEED certification. So I can only imagine that would help, I don't know, make things run smoother. It's kind of like with the different disciplines we're into, you know, a lot of it's like, yeah, if you know, if you get involved early, you can avoid a lot of mistakes and keep things on track and et cetera. Yeah, it, it's great. It's great, actually. I can't emphasize enough how, how beneficial it is um, because there's nothing nothing beats um, having commissioning guys involved in the design phase, in my opinion, guys that have been through been through their projects and know where, where the, the gaps can be in the design. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of the same mistakes are made on every project. <laughs> I think the, the lead... The lead enhanced commissioning too provides a very simple and easy to use enhanced commissioning guideline that uh, really isn't available in too many other places, especially as it applies to clean room or metrology or anything like that. So it's um, it's an easy reference for owners to use to say, well, we need the enhanced commissioning not only for the social benefits and the uh, money, but because there's real benefits to the enhanced commissioning. Hmm. Yeah, and there's a portion of the enhanced as well, which goes into uh, building envelope commissioning as well, which I think is very important. Um, where you know the, the the owner will stipulate what level of testing that they would like to see uh, in the building envelope commissioning itself. So it might be water tests on the side of the building uh, or against jetted against the window, for example. There's certain standards you know to follow for that. It could be that they want to do an infrared scan of the roof uh, to make sure there's no leaks there. Um, so it's very different. And there's also wall inspections before the walls get closed up to make sure that the insulation has been installed correctly. Hmm. So I think it's very beneficial. So from a, a clean room commissioning standpoint, you know, when you're involved early with a lead or, or you know, whatever brings you in in the design phase, um, you know, instrumentation and just the uh, equipment in general, do you do you guys push for, I don't know, Diff better types of equipment and instrumentation, you know, than you would maybe usually see if you weren't involved earlier. Do you find, and you can't, I don't know, speak brands or what have you, but you know, is there some specific stuff that you like to use or like to see utilized for the for the um, HVAC systems when you can say you should maybe use this uh, actuator instead of that actuator, or you know, these transmitters instead of those transmitters? Does that happen much or no? It does actually, and we have been involved in situations where, for example, the instrumentation that would have been spec'd out for clean room pressure control, for example, would right. have been, you know, the range zero to 10 inches or zero to 25 inches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're yeah. like, we're reading a 0.01 or 0.1. Yeah. Yeah. For, yeah. And the nominal accuracy of, of the instrument then is, you know, is way over and above what the tolerance is of the yeah. clean room. So that's one example. Um, the other examples would be the fail position of the valves, you know, which doesn't really matter what. What, the, what building's supporting, you know, we, we look at that, we look at the redundancy, we look at, you know, do the valves have bypasses around them? Can they be serviced, removed, accessible? Um, all that gets looked at too in, in the design review. 
Um, a lot of because semiconductor, you know, has a lot of a broad range. A lot of focus is put on um, cross cross discipline scope gap analysis. Um, you know, do the voltages line up to the actuators? Um, do the controls? Have we considered the thermostats? What voltage are they? Um, you know, to try and knit it all together. Um, we often do that in the design review as well. And so in the heel of, sorry, go ahead. Well, I'm sorry, Pat. So you're saying more of a coordination between different disciplines? Correct. Okay. But also, also it's um, there, there's always, you know, when these facilities, they're building them bigger and bigger. And of course, it's, it's a huge package. Their hu- packages are huge and they take time to review. But, but you know, us being involved in that, I think, pays for itself in the long run. Oh, absolutely. I, I could yeah. could not stress that enough, but it's it sometimes tough for firms and owners to maybe see and understand that because yeah. a, a mistake that can be prevented in the design phase is a heck of a lot cheaper <laughs> than a mistake that's got to be remediated once it's built, right? Yeah, and of course it's a high risk, high reward business, and you know, yeah. you know, you, if if the plant gets impacted, um, say for example, we lost. Uh, instrument error um, and it didn't have you know adequate backup from another system you know it can be can be um you know the the bills can run the scrappage of, of production wafers okay. can can be can be huge cost can be huge to the client so you know it's a no-brainer so we we do focus a lot on single points of failure in, in our design review so that's that's something i don't mean to jump around on you but um you know that really stuck out to me when we were talking about this podcast and a little bit of what we were going to discuss is the like the redundancy of you're talking like instrumentation even to make sure things there's no failures yeah so part of what we would do for example if you had a certain functional area in the clean room that had maybe three three trans three temperature transmitters um they may typically may take an average of those three Mm -hmm. um it would also have a deviation alarm you know if the if one transmitter deviated from the other by 0.5 of one, or it could be one degree F, well then right. you know we get a deviation alarm. But we'd also fail the transmitters to make sure that if we are averaging that, that the calculation reverts to the other two that are within range. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'd have a lot of that to do. You could have up to 50 different zones in a clean room, uh, no problem. So is that common, uh, Pat? Like triple redundancy on transmitters, sensors, things like that? Is that yeah, depending on the criticality of the area, we, have, we definitely would have redundancy. Um, okay. And so what uh, about valving and things like that? Damper actuation, do you? Yeah, so typically we, we would test for a whole last state. You know, if the if we had a cooling zone or we'd have sensible cooling within the clean room, multiple cooling zones where we, we would be running what we call turkey chill water through those coils. The air flows through the clean room and comes back up through a return air chase to get mixed with the makeup air again, but it's all the heat from the light, from the lighting, the personnel, the tools uh, mm-hmm. needs to be trimmed back. So we would have temperature transmitters uh, strategically placed to, to cater for that. And we would fail those transmitters. And if it was just a single transmitter, it would it should uh, you know, coordinate with the PLC to hold the valve in its last known state and send an alarm into the uh, BMS. So we would have to test all of those. Interesting. So, so a whole different level of modularity and redundancy with these types of systems. Yeah, indeed. It's typically 10 plus one, if not 10 plus two across the board gotcha. with uh, anything that has anything to do with production or close to it. 
And that goes for, for like major mechanical equipment and, um, like field devices, huh? From the sound of it. Yeah, it would, it would go everything from process exhaust fans, uh, secondary distribution pumps, heating, cooling, yep. cooling towers. Yeah. The whole thing has to be typically designed in that way. And we would typically make sure that all the emergency power is lined up as well with, with anything that's anything to do with life safety. For example, all the process exhaust would be, um, on the emergency power system because of course with all the chemicals and gases that are involved in semiconductor a lot of those uh, containment cabinets are under a slightly negative pressure right in case in case there's any leaks of any of that uh, material and it's important that those exhaust systems are on 24 uh, 7. it's important to point out semiconductor once they fire them up um, these facilities they they have to stay running um well, until five o'clock at night, right? Then they shut down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they turn out the lights. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it can take, you know, they say it can take, you know, up to three months to produce some of these products. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing I'm taking away so far. And this is an excellent conversation, Pat. Thank you for joining us here. But uh, like, this is like a metaphor for life in a way. I mean, the consequences are huge, right? Like you say, something goes wrong. You know, I mean, I know you do a lot of work with semiconductors and we all know what that goes into and how that's impactful to our life and running everything. But I mean, you're talking life sciences, food processing. Do they use clean rooms too? Yeah, okay. yeah, they do. But it would be, you know, of a different different classification, I would I would imagine. I haven't done a lot in, in the in the food processing side. Uh, sure, certain- military and aerospace research and all that kind of stuff. So the consequences of having a problem are massive, right? So that's why I think that the level of preparation and thought and detail and checks and balances that goes into it before you even, like you said, start these things up. Well, I think you're right, Nick. This The clean room applications go across so many things that we touch in our daily lives from food to pharmaceuticals to some kinds of packaging. I mean, it, they touch everything. And, you know, we take so much for granted that, oh, when we get something and open a package, it's safe. It's been manufactured. Uh, I mean, there are, it, it's just a very multifaceted, multi, um, multi industry technology, not just semiconductors, but, um, it, by and large, the general public or even the general HVAC contractor may have no knowledge of uh, working in a clean room or the kinds of conditions that are required. Very specialized. Um, yeah, I want to take this and spin off of it a little bit. You know, the redundancy and, and the criticality of, you know, the uptime of all this stuff is is very important. So I find it for like the commissioning process, Pat, it, it has to be from a planning and, and actually an acting standpoint pretty challenging for you guys to say okay um now it's time to commission this right we turned everything on and it turned on great you know you did whatever pre-functional stuff you can do to make sure it's gonna turn on and and generally function but like to go through um you know pid loop tuning and and all those those failure tests that you just talked about how things need to be able to revert back to you know instead of three sensors two sensors or if a valve fails or a, you know, a chiller or a boiler, what have you. And, and you can't impact the, the stability or, or the, the environment of the clean room, right? That's got to be, I don't know if you could speak to that, but I imagine very challenging. It is indeed. And, and it never happens whereby 
there aren't tools being moved in before you have all this done. <laughs> you know, yeah. the production, you know, they have their deadlines that, you know, yep. time is money and yep. they want to move. And once those tools are put into the controlled environment, I mean, they often arrive in climate controlled trucks, for example. Mm -hmm. So it's not like the, when they get to site, they don't have to, they don't need the same level of uh, environmental controls. So yeah, it is a challenge. We typically, if it gets to a stage like that, we would have to be very careful and submit our plan uh, to the owners to make sure that we're not going to impact uh, or if we are going to impact then we've got some you know parameters around how far we would go uh, before we would you know pull out of, of the test you know for example if we did a test and it, we said we're not going to bump the environment by any more than plus or minus five degrees f and if we do we're going to have to stop what we're doing right and come up with a better plan mm -hmm. yeah and just where sometimes you hit that you know all you get close to that that upper limit or lower limit of the threshold you have and you know, to respond, to, to stop and go back to the set point that you need to be is even sometimes challenging, I can imagine. It takes time. It just doesn't instantly happen. Um, yeah, exactly. It could be, could be that, you know, there was an issue with one of the cooling towers. Say we had, for argument's sake, say we had 10 towers and we managed to get uh, seven or eight of them commissioned within a timely manner. But we, we got hung up on maybe two, two of them for whatever reason. Um, could have been construction, um, construction issue. Mm -hmm. But of course, it might be, it could be a month or two afterwards, and then we'd have to go through a, a lot more uh, due diligence to make sure that testing of those final two towers, which could impact the chill water system, which could impact the clean room environment, um, we'd have to go through and lay it all out, plan it all out, submit that for approval. So yeah, yeah. it can be, the longer it kind of, the more you get delayed, it kind of is exponential, the harder it is to commission. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. You know, like to me, commissioning you know hit the freeze stat does a unit shut off like I can't, you can't if a clean room is in operation it's not that easy right i assume there's obviously there's a lot more involved in it than that rather than you know if you're comfort cooling a space sure the unit shuts off for five minutes it's not a big deal but you can't have that with a clean room from a pressurization humidity temperature standpoint yeah it's it's true and we, we've been in situations whereby um, it could have been we were rotating the air handler, something went awry and uh, the pressure dropped and went up and down a few times. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that could be reflected then by you know, some particle measurements. We may see that, or we would see it on the trends for the temperature and humidity. And we would, they would come back to us and say, listen, guys, you can't, you can't, uh, you need to tighten up on that. Right. We can't, we can't bounce the, uh, the clean room like that. And um, not that I'm saying that would happen, but they would, you know, that that's what those guys are being paid to do. They're there to monitor and control the space. So we'd have to work with them. Um, for example, we've been in a situation where we brought a new air handler up online, makeup air handler. We've got three or four up and running. Everything's going well. We're throwing in 60,000 CFM each. And when we brought on the fourth unit, um, protocol personnel may have come back to us and said, we've got a, we've seen a big spike in our, in our clean room particles. And they may trace it back to that unit Hmm. Not having not having a sealed HEPA filter bank, um, so they would have to troubleshoot, put their particle analyzer on the discharge of those units, and then we may end up finding out that the uh, the HEPAs weren't installed correctly or not sealed up. Oh, fascinating! Yeah, and I got to imagine in in this realm, you know, you say, "Oh, we saw a big spike in our particles." I don't know what what a quote unquote big spike is, but it's it can't take much to, you know, raise the alarm flag, right? when they're trying to say what's going on here oh when it spikes it spikes yes it's amazing um, yeah. you know the numbers that can come back 
Um, but yeah, that's I guess that's what the um, you know coupled with that, it, it, we may have had a slight leak on the filters and we may have had a, a trap on the cooling coil on the off the condensate drain that was not trapped and it mm. could have been on the negative side of the fan and, and mm-hmm. brought additional particles. Yep. So it wouldn't have been pre-filtered. It would have been bypassing the pre-filters, which would have you know yeah provided a pathway. So simple things like that, but you learn with experience how to how to manage it, predict it, prevent it. Yep. Yep. Mm. And then um I know I just keep rolling, but it seems like you know for for scenarios where you can't I don't know, go through the commissioning processes you would like to due to maintaining temp you know, the clean room spec, is that when you guys find yourselves like monitoring say that and I, I assume it's ill-advised right but monitoring the bms more and watching how things respond just just to normal conditions and then i don't know what the right term is but making slight adjustments on programming from there as opposed to saying we're going to do this this and this let's let's just watch how it runs see how it responds to maybe a outside air temperature drop or rise humidity and and adjust it in real life if you'd call it that or does that not happen so much yeah, it can be a real challenge. For example, um, if we were, for example, we brought in, uh, say, the, the last air hander up online and it, we went from winter to summer in the course of bringing all these units online. Yep. And now all of a sudden, because the dew point, outside air dew points above 46, it might be up around 50, at the, 55 at this point. We, we can't check out, fully vet the humidification pumps and the humidification or dew point control of the unit. Mm-hmm. because of the outside air conditions. Um, we, we would have to, uh, I, you could call it, we would have to defer that to a seasonal test. Right. And that's not uncommon. That's what we would have to do. But funny enough, in these large projects, they you know they can typically go from 12 to 24 yeah. months. You, you typically get an opportunity. The yep. weather will, will give you an opportunity. Yep. Check them out. Well, and then other things may have changed by then if they're bringing in more tools and equipment, you know? In, indeed, and that would increase the airflow of the unit as well. There's more tools that come online, the more exhaust that gets hooked up to them. Yep. They go online and that pulls more, more air right. out of the clean room. So therefore, we have to add more makeup air. And therefore, all the we may have to retune the PID loops as a result of that. Yeah, that's wow. kind of one of the more interesting things I think I've learned today so far is just the continuous nature of it and like you said, time is money, get them up online functioning, but these are not static environments. They're going to be changing and dynamic and you guys have to respond to it. Yeah. And this is why the test adjust and balance tech, it can become your best friend over the course of the uh, the mm-hmm. project, because you know, what you started out with is not what you will end up with. And indeed it's not, it, it's common for the first 12 months of production for the facility to tool up. And it needs constantly, constant adjusting. Um, all the all the all the PLCs, the balance dampers, everything's changing. And indeed, these production facilities are foundries essentially, and they they make ships to order. And it's a constant um, constant game of rebalancing to tune it up and make sure you're not throwing energy out out through yeah. the stack as well. Yeah. You know? Well, and I, I think just like any any ISO process, okay, there's clean room recertification, but certainly the plant or the facility itself has internal 
auditors slash inspectors slash clean room uh, authorities. And when they do particle counts, if there's an anomaly, um, that sends off alarm bells, you know, up and down the organization because being out of compliance it has so many downstream manufacturing and product impacts. Uh, that if it's a serious excursion, it gets a lot of attention. Yeah, indeed, and it does. It does. Um, <laughs> Pat sounds like he knows. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah let, me, let me just say you don't. It, it doesn't take long to find out. <laughs> yeah but it's, what's interesting though as well is you know we've all we all know in the commissioning game what a blackout test is or system integration test where we pull the plug mm. basically and see how all the systems uh, react you know uh, emergency power and so on but it's often the case that you you cannot end up or you're, you're not permitted to do that depending on how fast the project got up and running um often they won't take that risk and they will rely on, you know, they will go to one substation maybe and, and or one switch set of switch gear and do it individually as opposed to a whole system test because they just cannot afford to take that kind of a hit and put, put the production tools at risk. Uptime, uptime. Uptime, uptime, yeah. I mean, unlike the data center, they have no choice really, um, data center sectors to, to really go for that test. But in semiconductor, I've been in situations where they will, They'll say, uh, no, we'll, we'll deal with that on a, on a, down the road. Hmm. Yeah, there's just got to be a, so much, you know, the, that was a, I was really excited for this episode because I, from my experience in cleaner commissioning, there's so much, I don't want to say it in a bad way, so much more involved, but there really is so much more involved than like your standard comfort cooling commissioning for anything, for any facility, it seems like. Just you got to worry about every little every little detail is extremely critical to keep all that uptime of the facility, because like I said or like you said, Pat, you know you go out of spec and equipment can't run, and you have downtime costs a lot of money as opposed to oh, I got a little cold in this common area or an office. You know the ramifications are completely different. So. Yeah, and indeed they are. I think one of the other challenges as well, as which we didn't mention, was the amount of different exhaust systems that are actually pulling air out of the same space that you're providing conditioned air into. Um, it's worth pointing out. So you can have different systems. They'll be solvent-based, they'll be caustic-based, they'll be acid-based, Yep. and then heat-based, just heat exhaust. And all those have to work in unison to keep the pressure somewhat stable. Um, and of course, each of the, depending on the equipment, will use those exhaust systems. They add them all the time. They take them out all the time. So, you know, your systems have to adjust to that. When you talk about the exhaust systems being involved in that, though, like, do you, the exhaust systems run to maintain whatever, a, a certain amount of suction static or flow on the system and the the makeup air maintains the pressure, correct? Correct. Okay. Correct. So one can can influence the other. Yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yep, yeah. But it, it, Pat, I mean, as you are involved in projects, project gets done. Okay, now it's occupied. How how often do you come back and uh, have to recommission? Or, you, I mean, we get involved in projects where it seems like every other week uh, there's a new exhaust either drop or system added, or there's. Um, a new piece of equipment that for whatever reason they, they, 
you know, require exhaust, compressed air, nitrogen, you name it. And the facilities just continue to evolve slash change or grow. Yeah, so the, the, what we'd say these more established uh, semiconductor um, companies would have very strict protocols in place for adding to any live system. Yep. It will be strictly permitted and there'll be a commissioning process, you know, to go with that, that they would have, that all the trades would have to adhere to. And at that point, when they're in production, they either have either ourselves or uh, some other third party that would do the, the commissioning, help them out with that commissioning, or they would do it in-house themselves, they would manage it. But the same rules would apply. All the documentation has to be submitted up front before they would even consider putting a hand on a valve or a damper. Uh, and opening up to opening up that new tool or shutting down that tool um, <clears throat> in order for it to before they you know they can turn around and say to the tool owner um, or the production supervisor that yeah we're good to go on this we've got all your utilities ready they've been tested vetted documentation has been uh, looked at um, our system can handle this new addition and we're going to put the balancer in there before we hand it over to you as well just to make 100% sure that everything's good that we'd number that we're by turning you on, we're not affecting the guy next door to you. So yeah, it's pretty pretty tight and coordinated. Has to be. Thanks, Clayton. You can just make that the volume of that last statement like four times the volume of everything else in this podcast. I, I know, I know. <laughs> I thought you were going to have something else to say to that. <laughs> no. Yeah, it's a uh, very very uh, strict. I must say, in some facilities, they have zero tolerance with you know. If you don't follow the rules there, because it's just too expensive and too costly to everybody. Well, that's the uh, right way to go about it. I completely yeah. agree that, you know, you have to understand that there are system impacts to what you want to do or what you may do if it's adding a piece of equipment or any kind of adjustment. You know, it's a system-wide impacts could occur. And um, yeah, there, there, there probably are people out there that don't think like that and want to just don't. Oh, I want to turn the exhaust on to my piece of equipment, you know, let's go. And um, they don't think about the ramifications. So, yeah. And this is why training is so important. And also for a commissioning guy also to be, you know, have the skill sets, the people skills as well to, you know, help the trades understand the criticality of, of the commissioning process and why, why the QAQC is so important, you know, and, and that's one attribute I, I always would look for. And in, in, in in, I think we've spoken about this on, or you've spoken about this on another podcast, how important it is for a commissioning engineer to to have that skill set, you know, of communication. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. Communication and uh, you know a lot of these spec specifications that are in these projects are, would be new to a lot of the trades, and you know we have to help them understand what's what's acceptable to the client and what isn't in, in the nicest possible way. So even if they have installed it incorrectly, it does happen, unfortunately. So. Yeah, you you have to approach it like, oh, let, here's here's the issue, here's why, let's correct it. Not, you're wrong, fix it now because you know the next time something comes up, you might not, they might not be too open to share any uh, mistake or issues with you. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. But I, I will say it it does take it takes time, but it can be done. I've certainly seen that here in in uh, in the northeast, uh, where large facilities have gone up, and you know the trades have the trades have gotten better and better and better at knowing how, how the how the whole thing works. You know, it just takes takes time. From your experience, you know, like in a lot of the work we all do with non-clean room stuff, it seems like over the decades, maybe, you know, commissioning 
wasn't revered as much as it probably should have been. And I wouldn't say there's a renaissance going on because I don't know if it was ever a big deal, but it seems there are more people are accepting the importance of commissioning or, or understanding, you know, how critical it is to, you know, commercial HVAC and performance contracts, things like that. How has it always been with clean rooms? I mean, it sounds like commissioning, nobody does anything without thinking about the commissioning folks now in your industry, but has it always been like that? Yeah. And my experience in the clean room environment, because it's such high risk, high reward, it's always been seen as seen as very important. Um, but I guess it's it's when we get involved has been the real big difference in more recent years. Um, you know, involved being involved in the design phase. And I think the general feeling is that that's becoming more and more understood, um, and, and the importance of it is being more accepted. And I think there are some states as well, or you know, you know, state state laws and so on as well, are helping to drive it home as well. Um, having the commissioning commissioning team involved and the importance of it. And with energy prices, they can, you know, going up and up as well. It's, uh, you know, that, there's that factor as well. That's another driver, I would say. Yeah. And that's why that goes back to your lead comment, which is so interesting. You know, it's not all just about the performance of, you know, the things that are important to clean room operation in that industry, but yeah, you want to do it with controlling your energy costs as well. Yeah. Huh. And one, one of the great things about the, the lead approach is that, you know, review of the training packages um, and coordination of the training from the vendors to to the system to the um, facilities team i think it can't under underestimate um how important that is because you know there's no point in building all these systems um with so much redundancy without having the trained expertise to, to run them um, I, I have seen a lot in a lot of cases over the years where you know the systems would have run well um Production's happy, everybody's happy, and then a small bit of human error uh, may have taken down some of the plant. And, um, you know, that in itself, like the training is so important. Oh, yeah. I mean, so you're talking operations and then obviously maintenance as well and service and all that. Uh, all has a big impact on the continued successful operation. Yeah, yeah. And I think lead really does steer, help to steer that and that they want the whole commissioning package to end up with the result whereby the, the, the client and the operation staff have, have everything that they need documentation wise and training wise in front of them to, to take it and run. Hmm. Are, are you like, is your team, the, the commissioning team that goes out and works on these clean rooms, are, are you guys like lead certified or is that a requirement or generally try to be or not so much? So the leads, to be there, there are different level or different types of certification that you can do uh, with the USGBC, as the United States Green Building Council, and need. Um, you can do uh, new construction is, is one of them. You can do O and M is another one. I think there's other energy related ones as well. But you don't necessarily have to be certified yourself. But mm -hmm. someone, but typically the architect is typically somebody has to be. In the overall picture, because remember, lead, right. lead lead itself is not just commissioning; it's a whole right. array of different stuff, as you know. Yep. And and uh, typically, no, they don't look for that. They do look for for the they do look for impartiality in the commissioning agent, and that they you know that there's no conflict of interest. As um, in, but as in, you're not working for the the dis installer or the mechanical team or what have you. 
or correct correct yeah yeah, yeah. and that uh, you know they do look for you know that you are under contract and that you're looking at things from an independent perspective and if there is any conflict of interest i think they look for some statement from you as well to cover that right to make sure that there's no conflict there uh, if you do work for the design firm i think you have to be I could be stand corrected on this, but I think you have to make sure that it's, an, it's a department within that company that specializes in just commissioning. So they do look for some impartiality. Because yeah, I can imagine that, you know, especially in the past, I don't know, even currently, is just commissioning in general has been a challenge where the quote-unquote commissioning team is part of the installation team, and there is that, you know, partiality to it and... Yeah, we've we've always discussed, especially in our commissioning podcast. You know, you want to be fully impartial, third party. That's the right way to do it. Work for the owner, not the construction team, and what have you. Yeah, it's worth knowing. It's not always, you know, it's not always a case where you have a choice either. You know, it could right. be that uh, we've seen situations where the the owner was doing a you know a new a new facility, hadn't done one before, and maybe they didn't have the uh, how would I put it? The departments, various departments, set up to put you under contract directly under them at that time. Right. Say right, at, right. at the early stages, so they would default to the general contractor. So, hmm. yeah. But it's more ideal, I would say. It's 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 better, I think, from my own perspective, for this commissioning agent to be under directly under the client. Yeah. Of I course, agree. it is. I, yeah, I, I mean. Unfortunately, even even if they are not directly under the client and, and working for the mechanical contractor or the design firm, in my from my perspective, that just it, it just is bad optics. So yeah. why not avoid all the issues and just say separate it contractually? You know, yeah. avoid all potentials for um, you know misalignment of priorities. Yeah. And one thing, in the, if you are in that situation, my message to commissioning um, teams is, is that communicate the same message to everybody at all times. You know, you should only have one message that goes out and everybody should hear the same message, whether it's the client or the general contractor, the construction team. You know, if you follow that sort of that guideline, um, that keeps keeps everybody informed and keeps everybody and you're, you're, you're not taking any side, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Great takeaway, Pat. Communicate the same message to everyone. Mm. <laughs> Makes yeah. everything easy at the end, right? Well, usually then only one person will be unhappy instead of everybody being yeah, unhappy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So this has been a really great podcast. I think we're going to be hitting close to, you know, what we like to keep is a is about a one hour podcast episode. Um, so I want to kind of finish with a closing question for you, Pat, and I guess Mark too, if you want to input and Nick, but I know you don't really aren't heavily involved in the commissioning end is, you know, with, with your guys years of experience and you've again, seen it all and probably done it all firsthand. What if you're, you know, anybody listening to this podcast is interested in commissioning or clean room commissioning. What's what would you say, you know, number one thing to not do or something that sticks out to you as like one piece of advice for anybody interested in getting into this um, industry or that's already involved in this industry and is trying to learn a little bit more to not do? Yes. Okay. Interesting. Like we've all made mistakes, right? (laughs) 
you learn from your mistakes and you, you don't you don't make those mistakes twice that's how you learn right you're doing it right love but it great question what like what have you learned firsthand that's like yep i don't want anybody to ever do that because that was a really painful learning experience for me i don't know <laughs> or or you've seen somebody learn firsthand that was really painful that you uh is worth voicing to somebody listening putting you guys on the spot well I, i'll go just because it's um it, it's become uh obvious not just in commissioning but through the whole evolution of um, my career path and it, it follows along with pat's message that you tell everybody the same thing it is um and it's been an unfortunate set of circumstances where if you are an employee of a company you're a direct employee um, in some instances there's a reluctance to deliver the same message up the chain as you're delivering at the local level meaning oh we can mop this up clean it up make it fit make it better and uh nobody will you know get their feathers ruffled but unfortunately um that that rarely works so and we do work in all kinds of facilities and i can't tell you how many times uh, clients have said well you need to come to work for us but the reality is and i've told them very clearly if i come to work for you my value will be diminished because i can no longer be absolutely honest i'll have uh, when you have the power of my paycheck um i'm in i, I need to protect that paycheck so uh, obviously, I can't tell you the truth. When I'm a consultant or a commissioning agent, you can fire me with no impact and no hard feelings. Um, I'll be happy because I always tell the truth and you can go on your way. So I, I think it goes right back to what Pat said. Number one, you deliver the same message to everybody. But number two, you always make sure you have the facts and deliver a true message. Yeah, I, I agree with that 110 percent. It's a great point. Um, yeah, um, what was one message I would have to because in, in clean room environment because of you're probably producing high end products as a result of that. And my advice would be that, you know, it's not uncommon to see impacts to clean rooms or impacts to production in this sector that can run into big figures. So it's very, very important even. And, and it's also a, essentially a chemical and gas plant. So there are safety elements to the whole thing as well. Um, documentation um, is very, very important. The teams that are commissioning teams on these projects, clean room uh, production environments, doing anything with that, be 100% with your documentation and comfortable with it and stay on top of it. Not an easy thing to do in these, you know, in a high intensity project under pressure schedule wise and everything else. But that's very important. Document everything. Yeah, Document absolutely. everything as you go. Yeah. <laughs> So now I have to retract my earlier statement as the one thing, um, because following on with what Pat said, and the, maybe we'll get some young listeners one of these days, but the, the, you know, abbreviated version I'd like to say is do your homework. So, you know, uh, and we've talked about this on other podcasts, you're prepared when you're on site, your documentation's right. I agree with Pat a hundred percent know what your mission is, make sure you have all your tools, make sure you have, you know, all the documentation, but yeah, that's really important. So you're saying from somebody out, like going to do commissioning yeah. in the field, show up prepared, bring your instrumentation, 
know what you're going to do, how you're going to do it, have your commissioning plan ready to go, print it out, whatever. Don't just say, I think we should try this now and we should now, maybe we'll go try this now and yep, plan it all out. Yep. Yeah. Like and it. yeah, and be patient. It takes time to get good at, uh, at when you get into to these environments um, from a commissioning standpoint. Um, it does. It takes time. Uh, you need to be patient. You know, take your time with it. Do things right. It's just not the environment to do things by half measures. It really isn't. This is a place where you, you don't want to learn from experience in a negative way. <laughs> you correct. Gotta, correct. Got to be right. Yeah. Yeah. The consequences are far too high to find out you should have done something differently. Yeah. I like it. I think this was a really, really great episode, guys. I um, agree. Fascinating. It'll be awesome to get this out there. Hopefully for our listeners, you guys really enjoyed it. This was, I, I know for, for our podcast series going on now that you, if you've tuned into all of our other episodes, it's been, we've been covering it, it's a lot of different topics, you know, modern issues, everything going on in the world today related to buildings and facilities. And this one, this was a very, I would say a very technical podcast episode. Um, and I'd like to do more of them too. So hopefully our listeners enjoyed it and learned something and took something away from it. And uh, Pat, I really appreciate you joining on with us. I know getting getting that first email from you, the first thing that came to mind is we got it. We got this guy knows what he's talking about. We got to get him on and hear what he has to say. So I really appreciate your time. Okay, well, I enjoyed it, guys, and uh, thank you, and keep up the good work. It's great.